the name of Jesus has both lion and lamb in it. He came as a lamb, sacrificial. You know what this means? According to Hebrews, it means that he is the ultimate, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Not, not the blood of bulls and goats that's able to satiate God's wrath for a time while your sins build up over the year. And then this lamb has to be offered the, again each year. He is the final, complete Lamb of God that Hebrews says he died once for all to take away, not just press down, but take away your sins, meaning the wrath of God has been thrown away from you. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is the Lamb, but Jesus is also the Lion. The book of Revelation gives us the picture of the lamb and the lion coming together and Jesus is going to come as a lion and do deal with evil once and for all and he is coming and at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord what a wonderful powerful name Jesus Christ so let's bow our knee because he's worthy of our obeisance and ask him to be with us this morning Heavenly Father, everything that we rejoice in, anything that's praiseworthy, that's good, that's wonderful, is because of you. Every good and perfect gift comes down from you. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, we thank you for a sacrifice. Thank you for your only son who was human just like us, but who was God that was able to live the life that we could not and die the death we deserve so that we could become the righteousness of you. Thank you for that. I pray that you would invigorate our hearts with mercy this morning, that it is real. We woke up and our mercies are new. That God, you love us and you care for us. And though our sins be like scarlet, many, they should be white as snow because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you for his body and for his blood. So we ask you this morning to be with us and help us as we open your word that we be the people that you desire, that you've redeemed for your own possession, that we'd embody our Savior here on earth. We pray this all in his wonderful name. Amen. All right, kids, have a wonderful time. We love you. Enjoy Kids Church. Summit Kids, welcome to Summit Everyone Else. I got a few things that I want to talk about before we jump into our series, into our sermon. Um, summit Church, eyes on the summit, it's the pinnacle. We, we want to remind everyone to keep your eyes where Jesus is, who's at the right hand of the Father. He, there's nothing higher than him. There's nothing better than him. There's nothing more authoritative than him. He is our king. Summit Church, and here at Summit Church, you will find little pockets of different summit people. One of those would be summit women. And you may have seen little flyers around the church, these little square flyers. If you haven't, if you're a woman and you haven't seen it, pick one up. You see Summit Women, and then you'll hear that they are a one another sisterhood. They want to be about relationship with one another and truly live out the sisterhood of Scripture. And there's a cool event that's coming up that involves being under the stars at night. So it's going to be a wonderful time for the women to get together. Please find one of those flyers and look up more details about what's coming up. Do not miss it. The other thing is this, November 14th and 16th, November 14th and 16th, that is a Tuesday 
and a Thursday, uh, we have felt uh, very, very much led as leadership to speak into kind of some current events going on in the world concerning Israel, concerning end times, concerning what God has to say about the end of the world as we know it. So that Tuesday night and Thursday night, I'll be leading a, uh, a lesson called, Is This the End? We're going to have plenty of time to uh, jump into some things. We won't be able to talk about everything, but that is something that we see very important. And we want you to make uh, an opportunity to come to either the Tuesday or the Thursday. We're doing it two times within one week, so you can make sure to be there. Also, so you can make sure if you have kids, there's no childcare, that you let the, your, the husband come one day and then the wife come the other day and the other stay home and watch the kids. So that's going to be November 14th and 16th. We're answering the question, is this the end? Right? Not compelling at all. Very boring topic that no one cares about, right? No. We'd love to see you there. If you want information, please talk to us um, anytime that you can. Send us an email. Don't forget at the left-hand side of the road, there's a little black book that we always would love for you to pass around and to write any prayer requests you have. We have a team of people who are praying constantly. Uh, The leaders get to see this. The pastors get to see it. It's a good way for you to communicate with us and let us know what you need prayer for and they will be. You can trust that they'll be prayed over. All right, so don't forget that. Okay, let's take our Bibles. Let's jump into our series, Identity Matters, First Peter, and we're gonna be in chapter two. First Peter chapter two, today's uh, sermon is entitled Holy Citizens. Holy Citizens. Identity matters. Also, Peter talks about identity matters, matters pertaining identity. Let me, let me just show you so far what the scripture has in First Peter uh, said we are is in terms of identity in the last couple weeks. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then Todd preached last week, I beg you, or I urge you, beloved, as sojourners and exiles, which carries the theme that was introduced within the first two verses, that we are elect exiles. Chosen people whose, as we were chosen and saved, our time on earth changed for us. Our home changed. Heaven is, is home and earth is not. So our time on earth is is, is a time where we're like aliens and strangers wandering through, waiting till we get to our home, but we're in this strange place now for a deep, deep purpose. And if we do not know who we are, if we're not aware of the identities that God through Jesus has given us, then they will not impact our time here on earth. We're, we're going to start a a series of sermons for these next couple weeks that really jump into what the the book has been leading to, what Peter has been trying to get at, which is who you are here on earth and how your identity in Christ affects your small identities here on earth. 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. He's a chosen race, all of these things, royal priesthood, Wonderful thing. I'm telling you who you are. Now those identities should impact and affect the temporary identities you have here on earth. I want to show you on the screen some of the uh, uh, identities that are going to show up in these next few verses. So we've seen this. Here we go. Be subject, everyone. 
So now let's talk about every Christian. This is everyone included. That's what we're going to see today. Verse 18, next week, he's going to be speaking to those who carry the identity of slave, of servant during that time. It's a little bit different for us. Maybe we should be thinking employee for our time. Then we're going to jump down. He's going to speak directly to those who carry the identity of wife. Then he'll be talking directly to husbands. Then he's going to shift his attention to all of us again. And then in chapter 5, he'll end with speaking directly to the pastors of a church. Identities that we carry here during our time of our exile, that because of our identities in Christ, it begins to change our conduct in these particular identities. So let's read the passage together. 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, Peter says this. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now let me highlight something in this passage. It's behind me. Notice the words, be subject. Be submissive. Or in other words, this is the military term. has the idea of coming uh, in rank, putting yourself in the proper rank of where you fall, underneath an authority, willingly, for a great purpose, Be subject for the Lord's sake, and then here it is, to every human institution. And this is one of these sermons where it's like, this this is not easy to preach. This is also not easy to receive. But when it comes to who is worthy in our life of us striving in difficult things for, if it's not Jesus Christ, I don't know who else is. Be subject to every human institution. Now, let me show you this. You're going to see this word be subject show up again in the next few weeks. Be subject is talking to everyone concerning every human, to, concerning government. Slaves, be subject to your masters. Wives, be subject to your husbands. And then the next few identities, you don't see that word be subject show up because the implication is, is it's talking directly to submission to God and the commands he's giving to us. So all of these All of these are under God's authority. God is the one who is telling us to be subject because of the certain identities we have. And so you'll see this on the next screen. All of us are under God's authority. When it comes to being a Christian, you lay your life down uh, and you say, not my way, but your way. And you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, whom you call on as Lord and Savior. That title, Lord, is Master. You are saying, He is the one who I submit to. He is my authority. He is my supreme sovereign. Everyone else, sorry, you're to the wayside. God, I surrender to you. So then, then when you look to your Lord and you say, Lord, what would you have me to do? He looks down to those who are his subordinates that have believed in him in faith, and he says, I want you to be submissive to the areas of authority in your life where I have sovereignly placed you look at this next screen 
See if you can relate to what I thought here. This seems impossible, does it not? If we think about being submissive to every human institution, if we're just thinking about that goal, thinking about that command, seems impossible sometimes. It seems very difficult because there are human institutions that are not in themselves evil, but operating for evil purposes and evil characteristics and evil abounding through laws and government and things like that. And we're like, what are we supposed to do? We are Christians who obey to God. What am I supposed to do with all of these evil, seemingly institutions all around me? God, you tell me to submit, to subject myself, to be submissive to every single one. And then what happens in our mind when we hear that? We begin to immediately start to think, but what are the exceptions? What are the exceptions? That's where our mind goes to. And I believe if we were a slave back in that time, as we'll see next week, that's probably where the slave's mind was going to as they read this letter from Peter. But what are the exceptions? But, but when can I not? And especially when it comes to the wives, but when do I not have to submit to my husband? This idea of submission is not popular to us. How in the world are Christians able to be these types of submissive citizens? This is what the passage is going to show us. This is what we're going to look at. We're going to look at how a holy citizen, which would be a Christian here on earth, can subject themselves to every human institution. Before we jump into the passage, though, let me, let me talk about a little things from Scripture, a few things. You go back, you read the Old Testament, you will find this theme that originates in Satan himself, this theme of rebellion, this idea of not wanting to be under authority, this, this spirit within him that hated God and hated being under someone, the spirit that demands autonomy, began with Satan, the father of lies, and then he brought it to our first parents and was able to craftily help them believe that it is not good to be under the authority of God. You need to live life the way you want to live it. And then you see this theme through scripture of rebellion being the sin that's at the core and the heart of almost every single sin. Saul, when he was king before David, taught us what this rebellion can look like in a deceptive way. And when he was supposed to wait on God and had the command by God and was waiting for Samuel to offer the sacrifices and had very specific commands of what not to do and what to do in battle, Saul took matters into his own hands, did what God told him not to do, killed people he told not to kill, took, sl- took slaves of people he told not to take slaves to, and then he sacri- sacrificed animals when he was told not to because that was what the priest was supposed to do. And then Samuel shows up and is like, what have you done? And his whole reasoning was like, everything that I've done, I've done for the Lord. And those very famous words came out of Samuel's mouth. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And iniquity as the sin of idolatry. It is better to obey than to sacrifice. Deceived, thinking everything that he was doing in his own self-willed power was for the Lord. All the while, God had not told him to do any of that, yet he wanted to take matters into his own hand. Rebellion being at the core of every single one of us. And especially as we live in America that's about the land of the free, that's about empowering the people, by the people, for the people, puts in the heart of all of us as citizens here on earth this constant readiness to overthrow the government. Not unlike the zealot spirit that existed in the Jews during a time when Jesus came, ready to overthrow Rome at any given moment. How are we, though, who have been saved and now our subordination has been placed under the 
lordship of Jesus Christ to respond to the command of be holy, be subject to every human institution. Let me remind you of the time that Peter said this. The whole point is for us to think about when he said this and then apply it to our time. Probably around 62 to 63 AD, Peter writes this letter. 64 AD, the current Caesar, who was Nero, was going to start a persecution among Christians that would be unparalleled, at least up to this day, that we cannot even imagine that would last for about 300 years. Christians would be thrown into the, to, to fed to lions. Christians would be burned alive at the stake. Christians would be chased and killed. Not probably just a year after Peter writes this book. And so when Peter says, be subject to every human institution, whether to emperor as supreme or to the governing authority sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, It'd be hard to submit during that time, would it not? You know, every Roman citizen was required to actually deify the Caesar, actually supposed to offer some type of obeisance, worship, and declaration that basically Caesar was God, and the Christians were the ones who would not do this, and it made them very unpopular. It put a crosshair on their back. Statistically, when it comes to slavery, that time in our history... There were more slaves than there were free people. It was more common to be a slave during this time than it was to be a free person. And the one thing that we can still relate to today is, what do we do with taxes? What about government when they're using taxes for evil purposes? Is that when it's okay to rebel? May I remind you of the words of Jesus when they try to pit him in a corner, those who had all these differing opinions about what they should do concerning government and taxes. What do you say? Should we pay taxes? Should we render taxes to Caesar? And Jesus, just whose face is on this coin? Render to Caesar what's Caesar's. Render to God's what is God's. Implication, God's is your obedience. Jesus being the perfect example of himself, who was not an anarchist, who was not sent to overthrow the current government on planet earth was not the purpose that Jesus came for. It was to save people. And he's left us with a similar example. So considering how hard it was then, how hard it seems to be now for us, and just the continuing difficulty to be under government this day, I still ask the question, How can we be these holy citizens that are able to do what we're being told here, to subject subject ourselves to every human institution? Let's look at the first one here. Holy citizens are able to do this because they first consider their Lord. Notice what Peter says here in verse 13. Be subject, and he says this, for the Lord's sake. Right off the bat, the command comes... And then the immediate thing that he wants our head and our mind to go to when we hear that word, be submissive, be subject, is for the Lord's sake. Who's the Lord? It is Jesus Christ. You're supposed to be thinking about Jesus, thinking about how he lived his life, thinking about and considering what he would have from you. Be subject for the Lord's sake. Here's immediately motivation right off the bat for as to why you should be subject to the governing authorities. Not to mention the motivation that he has set up in the first 
two chapters leading up to this. Peter knew what he was doing. He knew he was about to ask his people very hard things during a very hard time that would cost most of them their life and suffering death to stay true to Jesus Christ. Not easy to tell people to stay in it and suffer. But what does Peter beautifully do? All you need to do is go back and read chapter one and your mind will immediately be propelled to heaven where Jesus is. You'll be reminded of what's waiting for you. You'll be reminded that you're the blessed ones. The world is not. You'll be reminded that you have an inheritance that's undefiled, imperishing, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power is being guarded through faith. You'll be reminded of what God's actually trying to do in your life, which is to test you through every circumstance so that your faith, which is more precious than gold, will come through the fire and prove to be true and genuine. And you'll know that, and it'll be praiseworthy, and it'll show up to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You'll hear Peter telling them, you don't see Jesus now, but you love him. You have not seen him, yet you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible, attaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls, which is supposed to be more desirable and beneficial and more exciting than any type of temporary peace we may experience. Now, it's the salvation guarantee coming that's supposed to be way better than that. And so Peter starts out the book trying to help these hurting Christians remember who they are and what they have to well up their hearts with gratitude and thanksgiving, but also to put their hearts in a place where they are beginning to care for the world in a way that causes them to conduct themselves in such a way that will help the world. Submission, willing submission, is at the heart of this effort. Holy citizens are able to be subject to these types of governments because they first consider their Lord. They consider how he lived. They consider what he wants. For the Lord's sake, they want to live for him. Peter, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 that whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. At the core of the heart, there's this desire to please our Savior. He says this, though, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Holy citizens are able to be subject in this way because they also know that at the core of things, authority is not bad, it's good. Authority is good. Submission is good. And if you pay attention to the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, we too have been infected by that spirit that's in the world. We're being taught from the beginning of our lives till the point now that that just submission feels bad and authority feels bad. We don't like it. We don't want it. We hate it. Our movies reflect our desire to rebel against it. Even in one of our most beloved movies from the 70s, literally the good guys are called the rebels. And the bad guys are the, uh, the, the autocracy that's, that's governing and trying to rule the galaxy. And we make them look like the Third Reich. And then it wells up in our heart this excitement, rebel, rebel. That's at the core of us. But something has switched. What has caused this, 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 this to be so natural among us? Those who are small and oppressed, rebel, overthrow, that's good. And those who have authority and power are bad always. No, there are bad people, there are bad hearts, there are evil people who take positions of power and they use that power for evil and they do not honor God and they will answer for it one day. But the position itself is not evil. Authority 
is not evil. Look what Peter says here. He speaks as if they know this. He says, he says submit yourselves, whether it be to emperor as supreme or governor sent by him. And then he gives a little perspective, a little explanation of why authority is not bad. Sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. Whether we like government or not, whether we're easily able to honor them and respect them, the one thing we can't admit, defunding the police will never be good. Christians should never be named among the ones who are going to protest and want to tear down the type of governing authorities that God himself has set up to bring some type of peace to this world. And look at the, uh, the societies and the towns and the place that have tried to do away with their governing authorities that punish evil and look at how they scream for help not long after. Because what you're doing is you're recreating the time of judges. Go back and read the time of judges. Among people who did not know war, they didn't know what life was really like and they started doing what was right in their own eyes, repeated constantly. They got to just do whatever they wanted to do and you know what the constant theme was? Immediate oppression taken into slavery, killed, war. And then the people would cry out to God and God would raise up a judge who would judge over them and he would bring, he'd bring peace to the land as a symbol of Jesus, of what Jesus would do. And they would have peace for a certain amount of time. But then the people would forget God. They'd begin to do what was right in their own eyes again. They would think that life was better to have it the way they wanted to have it. And then they would go right back into tasting the fruit of their own ways, which was destruction. And then they would cry out to God and God would raise up a person who would come and bring order to the land and they would experience peace. Authority in itself is not bad. Why is this so important? If, if at the core of our heart we say, I am a Christian in my identity, but I'm defined by a spirit of rebellion, if you can rebel against the authorities you can see, you will absolutely rebel against the authority you can't see. Jesus teaches this about loving your brother. If you hate your brother, you can see. Don't say you love God whom you cannot see. God is supreme authority. And the scripture even tells us that he is the one who sends the authorities. on the, He raises up nations. He raises up kings. He tears them down. Everyone that's in a place of authority, God gets the credit for putting them there. And then when we rebel against them and try to overthrow them constantly, we show that we do not have a trust in God. And we're like Saul, becoming self-willed, taking matters in our own hand, all in the name of God, but carrying his name in vain the whole time because our cause is just and good and we're sacrificing for him. No, God wants obedience from his citizens, from his nation. Our command is coming through and past all of these governing authorities from him. And then we say, God, what would you have us do? And he comes down and he says, I want you to be subject to those who are above you. Which ones? Every single one. From the local level to the state level to the national level. And immediately your mind goes, well, what about when they ask us to sin? Then you don't obey. When obeying them comes in the way with you obeying God, you do not obey but you have to also read scripture and consider how Jesus taught us. There were some that would say, yep, I cannot pay my taxes to this evil Roman government because of what they're using the taxes for. Jesus says, no, render to Caesar's what Caesar's. You don't get the credit for what they do. 
They will answer for those things. I want my citizens to not be anarchists. How are holy citizens able to be subject in this type of way? Well, first, they consider their Lord, but they also know that authority itself is good, not bad, and they respect and honor the authority. But then thirdly, this is because they first and foremost seek God's will. Look at verse 15 of 1 Peter 2. For this is the will of God. Simply put, the implication is that if you call yourself a Christian, what you want and seek more than anything is the will of God. When Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus himself being our example when he was in the garden of Gethsemane and he was sweating drops like blood, uh, thinking about the, 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 the day that I was approaching of great suffering and pain. He looks up to his heavenly father and he says, if this cup can pass for me, let it. But if not, your will, not my will be done. Christians follow the authority of God, their master. A slave does what their master says. A slave looks to what their master wants and then does what their master says. We'll talk about servants and masters, slaves and masters next week. Can you be defined as someone? Would you say in your heart right now, you, you wake up every day, go to bed at night, and the one thing you want is for God's will to be done in your life. Uh, understanding that God's will could be extremely difficult if he were to ask us to do certain things, but, but still knowing that what I should want more than anything is not my will, but his will, not my way. My way leads to destruction. His way leads to life. I'm seeking the will of God. Or is our seeking the will of God partial? Is it, God, I will serve you and seek you when I determine what it is you want for me is good or bad? And if I don't like it, I won't do it. But if I do like it, then me and you are on the same page. Let's go. Right? Maybe we don't overtly treat God like that, but it happens all the time, right? God brings something to us. We're like, well, I don't know if I want to deal with this or do this or suffer this way. Well, let's, let's weigh the pros and cons here. Think about what it would be like for these Christians during Peter's time who, were, who was facing a government so overtly evil that there was nothing subtle about the hatred towards them. Yet they're not being told to overthrow. Mad at Jesus when he claimed to be the Messiah and they rejected him because he wasn't there as the lion to overthrow. Holy citizens can do this because they seek God's will, but then there's a comma after God's will. He says this, for this is the will of God, comma, that by doing good, you, put, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Like we as the holy citizens, we consider our Lord. We know authority is good. We also seek the will of God. But then finally this, like we're not blind to what God's trying to do. We're able to do this because we know and we see the purposes of God. We know that God's at work and he's trying to do something very particular that's very effective and very productive. And our submission and our willing subjection among those who do not deserve it accomplishes something that rebellion could never accomplish. Look what he says here. For this is the will of God, comma, that by doing good, you should put, this, put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Look back up to verse 11 and 12. 
Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Behavior. Don't let your passions rule you, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, people who do not know God, the whole world that does not know God. Keep your conduct among them honorable. Why? So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now I want to bring in a little bit more motivation. Peter here is able to say these things because he believes that his fellow Christians would also agree with him that the most important thing is the glory of God and second to that, the salvation of others. The glory of God and the salvation of others. As a Christian, that's what I should want to accomplish with the fruit of my life is God's glory and I want others to be saved as well to be saved from darkness and brought into his marvelous life, to be saved from the pits of hell, out of condemnation, into justification, and be regenerated and redeemed and be free and become a brother or sister. I want the glory of God and the salvation of others. How do we do that? By seeking what God wants. And what he wants is our time during earth, which is limited. We don't know when it's going to end, which we should be looking at as a time of, uh, it's exilic, that's, that's strange, that's foreign, It's not comfortable for us because we're trying to live holy and different because we're from a different place of a different nation to live their lives in such a way that's honorable among the world so that when they, not if they, but when they speak against us as evildoers, racist and bigot and mean and judgmental and horrible or whatever it may be or what's wrong in the problem with the world, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Meaning this, people are going to persecute you for standing up for Jesus. But your conduct, when it is honorable among those who are mistreating you, persecuting you, and suffering, they see you responding responding to them in a way they never could because they do not have the Spirit of God. Calm, gentle, patient, like Jesus, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. To when you're slapped, you turn the other cheek. When you, you bless those who curse you, you seek the good of those who hate you, you respond in such a holy way that's completely different, that's otherworldly, they could never dream of ever responding to you the way that you're responding to them. And yes, they may hurt you, hit you, speak against you, persecute you in the moment, but they go to bed at night and they can't get that image out of your head of you being so gentle, kind, and patient, and they've just experienced the love of Jesus from you, and it haunts them in the best way possible. And three, four years down the road, they can't get it out of their head. They know because of the draw of the spirit that God is true he's true I saw it in them I saw it in her I saw it in him as I was treating them horrible and all they ever did was respond to me with love and gentleness and compassion if I were them I would have rebelled against that I would have took matters into my own hand and I would have hit them in the face or I would have fought back or reviled but they didn't do that holy citizens are very much aware of the purpose of what God's trying to accomplish through our willing subjection underneath oppression it's a holiness that shows people that God's real that helps people who cannot see Jesus now see Jesus in you a type of response that you can only do if the spirit of God is inside of you so that when they speak against you as evildoers they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation 
You don't know when the Spirit may be trying to draw them. But if your conduct among those people are no different than theirs, they won't see any power. So that when they hear the gospel and God's trying to draw them through the power of their spirit, they reject them because the Christians they knew were no different than them. Because they seek God's will and because they see God's purposes, they can subject themselves to these circumstances. Peter repeats this in our passage today. For this is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. People who don't know what they're talking about that would call you names, call you the evildoer. Watch it. Go on YouTube and watch anybody doing a a street evangelism effort today. They'll be calm. They'll be collective. They'll have the spirit of God upon them and they'll simply be bringing the word of God and, and, and give it just a few minutes. They'll have crowds of people surrounding around them doing everything, everything they can not to just punch the person in the face because they can't stand what they're hearing. But you better believe those people are going away and they're remembering and seeing how that person responded. Now, if that person began to lose control and fight and argue then it immediately diminishes the good work that God's trying to do in that moment through the eyes of those who would want to kill them. I remind you of Stephen the martyr, who being filled with the Spirit of God, spoke to people in a way that caused them to gnash their teeth at him, just giving them the truth, and they rushed to kill him. And one of the people there approving of his death was Saul, who later was visited by God, Jesus Christ himself on the road to Damascus, And when Jesus visited him, you know what Paul did? Saul did, fell on his ground and he worshiped. And he said, who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus who you're persecuting. I guarantee you immediately right now, rushing through Paul's head was the visions of Stephen who he knew had the spirit of God inside of him. And Paul comes along to be one of the great writers of the New Testament, specifically to the Gentiles, to us. You don't know who you're impacting by your simple Submission, living different and responding differently than how anybody else would on the world. I mean, think about it. If you're in a position of government and power, you see the subordinates under you and you see those who would want to overthrow you and who will make life as hard as possible for you. But for our governors, it should be different. They should experience something totally different. They should experience holiness, which is otherworldly from Christians. They shouldn't be able to make sense of it. They should, they should find within themselves that the people and the constituents I want to be around are Christians. The people that I, I, I want around me are Christians. The, the people who are here for me are Christians. I can't explain it. I don't agree with them, but something about them, they're the ones that I'm relieved to see coming, not going. Christians. Because they subject themselves to my authority better than anybody else does. Yet they make it known they disagree with me. Holy citizens are able to subject themselves to every human institution because they choose to serve. Look at this final point. Peter says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Live as people who are free. An identity is you've been freed from sin. You've been freed from the, the righteous requirement of the law. It no longer hangs over you as a, as a, as a master You've been freed from sin and that you are free. Technically, all things have been made clean in your life. You can do whatever you want to do apart from sin. But read what the teachings of Scripture says about how you should use your freedom. 
Peter says here, do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. I'm free. God's my sovereign. I don't have to obey you. You're using the freedom that God's given you for your own purposes. Read 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. That's all about you have the right to do this, but you lay down your rights for others if it means it helps save them. You become all things to all people. You don't demand that people adjust to you and turn into you. You adjust your life to accommodate everyone in your life. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Apart from sinning, you become all things to all people. Whatever rights you have, you lay down for the sake of the gospel that some might be saved. And in a country that is a democracy, not an autocracy, we have to fight for that even more so because the freedom is the main theme. How are you going to use your freedom? As a holy citizen, you take your freedom and you willingly use it for the sake of others. Under the slavery of God, the service of God, God, what would you have? Do not live as those who cover up their evil with the excuse of freedom, but live as those who serve God. Let me remind you of the holy citizens of the past. You'll see a few on the screen. Joseph, you read the story of Joseph, you know what you find? He was constantly put in a suffering situation in positions of slavery. But if you go and read Genesis for many chapters, you see whatever situation he was put in, he thrived because he subjected himself to the authority that was above him and he worked harder than everyone else and he rose to a position of being second in command to pagans who saw God's servant living in such a way with power and that when Pharaoh experienced Joseph, he said, can anyone in Egypt be found in whom is the spirit of God? Come to Moses. Moses found favor with the Egyptians as well and God used Moses in a mighty, mighty way. You come to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. This is their Jewish names, their Hebrew names, not their pagan names. You find that they had favor with these pagan kings, that they had, been, they had been risen among all of those in the land who were pagans. But God's people were put in a position to be influential. And then you see the example of Nebuchadnezzar trying to force them to bow down to a golden image, and they refuse, and they get thrown in the fiery furnace. What did that do to Nebuchadnezzar and them, them willing to submit that way, but also rebel when it was exactly right to rebel? Nebuchadnezzar praises God as anyone who speaks against God of Israel will be thrown into the fire as well. And then Daniel, oh, Daniel. What a wonderful example. Who lasted through several kings and who had the king's favor. Why? Daniel had the spirit of God in him. Nebuchadnezzar dies. Belshazzar shows up. He dies. Then Darius becomes king. Look what the scripture says about this new king coming in and experiencing Daniel as all the other kings before him had. It says this, Then this Daniel became distinguished above all other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. You have pagans honoring God's people. Why? Because of the conduct of God's people when they were in subjection to these authorities. Christians should be known as the, as we're going to see next week, best employees, the best citizens. We will be persecuted, but when they speak against us of evildoers, their words will never match our actions. You get this? So we choose to serve. Finally, Peter says this. You'll see it on the screen. 
How does he finish with application? Honor everyone. Everyone's a human being, so they can experience some type of honor and dignity from you, regardless of the crimes they've committed in their life. You don't honor everyone like you honor the emperor. President is going to get your respect and reverence that's in a way that not everyone gets, you know? Love the brotherhood. That shoots right back to the verses at the beginning of chapter two where we were commanded to love each other with an earnest, fervent, brotherly love. Fear God, very important. You do not fear our president. You do not fear the emperor. You do not fear kings. You fear God. But you honor through the fear of God, being obedient to him, you then come into this world and you honor every single king above you. And you willingly subject yourself to everything they ask of you except when they're demanding that you go against God. Then we must stand up and honor God above them. And if it would cost us our life, then we get to join the ranks of those whom the book of Hebrews says was the type of people whom the world was not worthy. And we know this, Jesus being our ultimate example, who when reviled did not revile in return, who when he stood before uh, Pilate, Pilate could find no fault in this man. Simply just spending just a little bit of time with this guy, even though the crowds around him were screaming that this man was evil, the governing official over the area could not conclude that this man was evil, but innocent, then sent to another king in the land who concluded the same thing about Jesus, then back to where the governing official didn't even want to bring a punishment against this man who he was immediately impressed by. But because of his cowardness, because of the plan, sovereign plan of God with this man, he listened to the crowds of people to crucify him and the command was giving and Jesus did not fight. Jesus said, no one takes my life from me, I lay it down willingly. And his death and his suffering under the hand of an oppressive government was the act of goodness that has saved us. And so now we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that if God would count us worthy to suffer like his son Jesus did under authorities, that we would trust that it would do some type of uh, speaking into the world to save our family and our friends and our loved ones and our coworkers around us who do not know the Lord, but by our good deeds and our honorable conduct, when we suffer, they will see Jesus. That's our prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, before my brothers and sisters, I pray that you would forgive me of where I have I have made in my own heart and even outwardly with my mouth a mockery the governing officials above me whom I do not like. God, would you forgive me? I pray as we're told in scripture that what we should do is pray for those. Got to pray for our governor. I pray for our president. I pray for everyone in charge of this country though I believe that they are acting evil in many ways that they are not doing good things. There is great corruption. Father, I pray that you would help them, that you'd open their eyes to the gospel, that God, you would, through the people of this country who call themselves Christians, they would see their good deeds and they would glorify God and you would turn their hearts around and save these authorities and kings and you'd use them for good in our land, not just through eternity, but through our temporary time here on earth. But Father, if they will not repent, if they will not turn to you and accept you as Lord and Savior, that Father, we would walk this path of Jesus and be willing to suffer 
in willing subjection under their tyranny. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.